When the men got up to leave, they looked down towards Sodom, and Abraham walked along with them to see them on their way. Then the Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham what I am about to do? Abraham will surely become a great and powerful nation, and all nations on earth will be blessed through him. For I have chosen him, so that he will direct his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing what is right and just, so that the Lord will bring about for Abraham what he has promised to him. Then the Lord said, The outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is so great, and their sin is so grievous, that I will go down and see if what they have done is as bad as the outcry that has reached me. If not, I will know. The men turned away and went towards Sodom, but Abraham remained standing before the Lord. Then Abraham approached him and said, Will you sweep away the righteous with the wicked? What if there are fifty righteous people in the city? Will you really sweep it away and not spare this place for the sake of the fifty righteous people in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to kill the righteous with the wicked, treating the righteous and the wicked alike. Far be it from you. Will not the judge of all the earth do right? The Lord said, If I find fifty righteous people in the city of Sodom, I will spare the whole place for their sake. Then Abraham spoke up again. Now that I have been so bold as to speak to the Lord, though I am nothing but dust and ashes, what if the number of the righteous is five less than fifty? Will you destroy the whole city for lack of five people? If I find 45 there, he said, I will not destroy it. Once again, he spoke to him. What if only 40 are found there? He said, for the sake of 40, I will not do it. Then he said, may the Lord not be angry, but let me speak. What if only 30 can be found there? He answered, I will not do it if I find 30 there. Abraham said, now that I have been so bold as to speak to the Lord, What if only 20 can be found there? He said, For the sake of 20, I will not destroy it. Then he said, May the Lord not be angry, but let me speak just once more. What if only 10 can be found there? He answered, For the sake of 10, I will not destroy it. When the Lord had finished speaking with Abraham, he left, and Abraham returned home. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Grace. A very long passage. Thank you. Would you pray with me once more as we come to God's Word together? Let's pray. Father, we just pause now and just open our hearts. And Lord, we just say to you in this moment, speak to us. Speak to us in the way that you spoke to Abraham. Speak to us through your powerful word that you say is alive and has the power and the ability to change our hearts. That's what we need this morning. We need hope. We need comfort. We need conviction. We need the fear of the Lord. We need your grace. We need to experience and to know your love in the deepest places of our hearts. We need to see Jesus. Would you come and do all of these things this morning in us through your word and the power of your spirit. In Christ's name we pray, amen. So today we come back to the story of Abraham 
we've been this fall in a series looking at the life and the story of Abraham, and what we've been saying over and over about this story is how foundational Abraham is for the whole Bible. Literally, everything that follows in the Bible is God fulfilling the things that he promised to Abraham. That's pretty significant. Right here at the beginning of the book of the Bible, God comes to this man and enters a covenant with him. We've talked a lot about what that means. And he makes promises to Abraham. And the whole rest of the whole story, even of all of human history, is about God fulfilling what he promised to Abraham. Jesus, in all of his teaching, he understood all that he was doing and all that he was teaching as a fulfillment of what God promised to Abraham. That's pretty significant. You cannot understand Jesus or what he came to do or even who we are if you're a follower of Jesus this morning. We cannot understand who we are apart from this man and what God promised him. In fact, we learn in the New Testament that whenever we come to Jesus and we're united to him, we get adopted into Abraham's family. And the promises that God made to Abraham thousands of years ago are being fulfilled today, right now, in us. So Abraham's huge. It's huge for understanding who God is. It's huge for understanding what it means to be in relationship with God. I mean, Abraham was called a friend of God. And so, understanding Abraham is essential for understanding who we are and what we're called to do in our life. Now, today in our passage, as we look here, we're going to see three basic things with God's interaction with Abraham. We're going to see the mission that Abraham is called to, and it's God's mission, and it's a global mission, and it's a mission that spans all of human history. So we're going to see the mission, then we're going to see the test. Abraham gets tested in that mission, and then finally we're going to see the power. Where does the power come for that mission? That's what we'll see in our passage. So as we come in here, you can tell from the very first verse that we're kind of entering in halfway through a story. And what comes right before this in this particular episode, and it's a very mysterious passage. I'd encourage you to go home and read it. But God comes, you know, Abraham has been waiting on this son, and he's about 100 now, and his wife's not too far behind him. They've been barren all of their life. God has made this promise that somehow he's going to give Abraham a son, and through that son he's going to change the world. That's looking pretty unlikely. And yet Abraham and his wife Sarah are trying to cling to that promise against all all the circumstances that say the opposite. And so in this place, just before this, God comes to Abraham and has dinner with Abraham. It's It's very mysterious. These three travelers come. At first, Abraham doesn't know who they are. And they come and Abraham receives them, shows them tremendous hospitality, but what you begin to discover, and what Abraham begins to discover in, in, as, as he's welcoming them into his camp, is that in fact, it is the Lord. The Lord comes to him in the form of a man with two other men with him who are angels. It's very mysterious. I encourage you to read it later. And literally, he shares a meal with Abraham. It's tremendous. They have a conversation. He reaffirms the promise and he says, Abraham... The time's here. In one year, you're going to have a son. 
And then we're coming into the story as they're getting up and they're about to leave. And we get right at the beginning, it's kind of setting up all that's about to follow. It's kind of a foreshadowing of what's looming. They get up and they begin to turn their attention towards Sodom and Gomorrah. Now, if you're familiar at all with that story, you know something of what's coming there. And now before they leave, what's interesting is that God begins to have a conversation with himself. In other words, he allows us to see into his own thoughts. As he's thinking to himself, he knows what's about to happen. They're about to go to Sodom and investigate. Eventually, we'll bring judgment there. And he wonders to himself... Should I bring Abraham in on what's about to happen? Should I involve him in this? Which he, of course, ultimately does. But what's interesting is that God in that moment, if you notice in in verse 17, he says, shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do? He's wondering to himself that. And then in verse 18 and 19, he reminds himself of his mission. It's amazing. God is... God is rehearsing to himself, not because he's forgotten, but he's going back to his mission for the world. Now, you ought to recognize this if you've been following along in the story of Abraham. This is verbatim what he's been saying to Abraham. It was the first thing he said to Abraham whenever he called him, and he reaffirms it here. So let's look at that mission. What is God's mission in the world that Abraham is called to play a central part in? Verse 18, Abraham will surely become a great and powerful nation, and all nations on earth will be blessed through him. Do you remember that? Right there at the very beginning call of Abraham. So here's what God's mission is. God has determined, even as the world has rebelled from him and fallen away, that he's going to bless all nations of the world. And the story of the Bible is God setting about bringing that blessing to all nations of the world. The way that he does that is to pick a particular man and to build a family through him. And through his family, that blessing comes to the world. So he reminds himself of that mission. Abraham, I'm going to bless you. I'm going to give you a son. I'm going to make you into a family and a great nation and give you a land. And all of that blessing for Abraham is tremendous blessing. But all that blessing is not just for Abraham, but it is so that through him God's blessing might go to the world. You see, it's missional. Even God's blessings and all that he's doing in our life is missional. There's a purpose that is to go beyond us. And it was that way at the very beginning, even with Abraham. So God's mission is this blessing of all the nations of the earth. And how he would do that is through Abraham and his family. And look at verse 19 as he he rehearses that. Verse 19, For I have chosen him so that he will direct his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing what is right and just so that the Lord will bring about for Abraham what he has promised. The way all these promises are going to come to fruition, the blessing of the nations, is through Abraham and his life. And not only his life, because think about it, if if God is going to bless all nations of the earth, that's going to take longer than Abraham's life. So how will he do that through Abraham? 
It is only as Abraham trains and teaches his family, his children, and those after him the way of the Lord. Now just note here that it is their lives that's going to bring about the blessing to the nations. It's not just that he is to teach to his children and his descendants just things about God, just information about God, but it is a teaching that is to be applied into their life and that will change the way that they live. It is their life that will bring about the blessing of the nations. Now, let me just go on a tangent here just for a second. Think about what God says to Abraham. The heart of your mission is for you to pass on your faith and what it means to follow me to your children. That was at the heart of his mission and of his calling. Now, I don't know if you're familiar with any of the the stats and the realities of the church today. I just heard this this past week. Somebody shared this stat with me. That recent studies have showed that 7 in 10 children will leave the, that are raised in the church, 7 in 10 that are raised in the church, will leave the church at age 18. That's a staggering kind of number here. And if you're a parent here today and you're looking in on this, grandparents too, we're looking in on this, we're seeing this huge calling that we would not only be those who follow the Lord, but that we would teach our children about what it means to follow the Lord. It's at the heart of our calling. Now, sometimes as parents, we struggle, and I struggle with this too, that we, 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 the things that we really want for our kids is that we want them to be successful, or we want them to be athletic, or we want them to be popular, we want them to have friends. We, all, the, all those are good things. But sometimes those priorities are more important to us than that our children follow the Lord. And sometimes we can think as parents that the best person to to teach my child about the Lord is someone else. Maybe someone in the church. You know, a friend of mine who visited our church at one point and they decided to go on to another church and we were... You know, we were talking about that, and I said, uh, I said, hey, tell me about what went into, you know, y'all's decision of where to, where to worship. And he said, well, well, the thing that I love about this church that, that we're going to now is that we show up, and the kids go this way, and we go this way. And they go off to a service that's tailored just for them, and it's a children's church, and then we get to go and have our worship, and then after it, we come back together. Now, don't hear me saying that's all bad, because it's not. I don't want to put that down. That's, there's, that is an effective way of training our children. But what I do want to challenge is this mindset that the best person to teach my children about Jesus is someone other than me as a parent. And we hope that someone else is going to come into their life and lead them to Jesus. And the thing that I think the passage is teaching us is that your calling as a parent, more than anything else, is to lead your children to be followers of Jesus. Now that can be incredibly convicting to me as well. Let me just say there's grace in that. It's not up to you. That's not what I'm saying. It is not up to you that your children will follow Jesus. But we are responsible to teach our children what it means to follow the Lord. So that's a little side tangent there for free. So back to the story. So, okay, he's called him, 
Here's what it's going to look like. You and your family walking in the way of the Lord is the way that my blessing gets to the world. Now, what does that mean to walk in the way of the Lord? He explains it for us. Now, there's a lot that could be said about that. What does it mean to walk in the way of the Lord? But look at how he summarizes it in, that, in the very verse that we're looking at. That he would direct his children, this is verse 19, and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing what is right and just. That's his little summary there of what does it mean to walk in the way of the Lord. Two words there, the root is where we get righteousness and justice. Now those are huge terms throughout the scripture. They're used over and over and over and over and over. Now they're kind of, especially righteousness is kind of a religious term and it's hard to really get our hands around what exactly does that mean. Righteousness means essentially uh, dealing rightly, doing what is right in relationships and in situations you find yourself in. That's what righteousness is. It's about how do I treat this person in my life? How do I respond in this situation in my life? You know, it's doing right in those situations in our life. Uh, we, we've said before the definition of righteousness is from my Hebrew professor that knew Moses. His, that was a joke. Just a few people got that. Bad joke. He knew Moses and Moses explained to him that this is what righteousness is. Righteousness is disadvantaging yourself for the advantage of the community. What a profound way to understand righteousness. You see, our, our temptation is to think righteousness as individualistic, like it's having my quiet time and it's not saying cuss words and it's you know, not dancing or going to Halloween parties, you know, whatever it might be. We blew that at family camp. We had a huge dance party, so we're trying to get back to righteousness. No, but see, we have this tendency to think of righteousness as just personal piety. Now, that's not bad. That's a very good thing. But as we come to Scripture, righteousness is communal. Righteousness is how do I treat the people in my life? What is the quality of my relationships? And essentially, am I using people? Is it about me? Or do I serve? Do I disadvantage myself? For the, advantage, for the advantage of the community around me. Now, justice, now these justice and righteousness, very closely related. It's kind of like law and order. We use those kind of together, righteousness and justice the same way. Very closely related. But justice has the sense of acting to bring about what's right in a situation. So you see a situation, you see something about a relationship, or you see something in our community, or something something in our county that's not right. And justice is seeing what's broken in a situation, and it's acting. It's doing what is in your power to show up and to try to make it right. It's bringing about what's right. That's justice. And almost always in Scripture, it pertains to those who are vulnerable. So justice is intervening for the poor. Justice is stepping in for orphans and widows. You know, God describes Himself as a God of justice. What does that mean? He is a defender of orphans and widows. That's justice. It means that you act whenever you see someone being denied their rights, taken advantage of, abused. Justice is 
acting in those situations to bring about what's right. So the thing to see here is that the heart of the way of the Lord is doing righteousness and justice. So here's the big idea here. How would God bless the nations? How would His blessing get to the world? It was only as Abraham and his family walked in the way of the Lord. It was the quality of their life, of their relationships, particularly how they related to the poor, that God's blessings would come to the world. In a sense, they were to be a missional community. We talked about that at family camp a lot. You see, that's huge to see. Because I think sometimes whenever we think about mission in the church, particularly in the American evangelical church, we think that mission is primarily about word, a ministry of word. It's about what you declare and what you say, standing up for the truth. But the thing that we need to see is that if our words, our sharing of the gospel, which is essential, is not embodied in our lives and in our relationships, our words are empty. They're empty. It matters not. You see, with our words, we make the gospel audible so that people can hear it and understand it. But it is with our lives that the gospel is embodied. You see, God says... That is how my blessing will get to the world. It's when the ministry of word and the ministry of deed are wedded together. So hard for the church to bring those together. Sometimes the church is strong on word, but very weak on acting. And sometimes the church is is really strong on social justice, but yet weak on evangelism and sharing the gospel. See, they must be wedded together. The thing to take away here is that mission And ethics, ethics are how you live, doing what is right, are inseparably wed together. You cannot strip them apart. This weekend we talked about that quote from Eugene Peterson, who this week passed away, graduated to glory. But he said the church, I love this definition of the church, the church is a colony of heaven in a country of death. A colony of heaven and a country of death. That the church is God planting a piece of heaven in the midst of a broken world. So that that colony might spread and colonize the earth. That's our mission. You see, you can't do that without living out the values of heaven right here. Justice and righteousness and love. It is through the quality of our life together, our community, that mission succeeds. So then there's a second thing to see here. So we see that here. God's reminding himself of of his mission and Abraham's part in it. But then he invites Abraham into the situation that's about to happen. And it forms a test. It it forms a test. Is Abraham going to walk in righteousness and justice here? And so he lets Abraham know what's about to happen. Look at verse 20. Then the Lord said, The outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is so great and their sin so grievous that I will go down and see if what they have done is as bad as the outcry that has reached me. If not, I will know. Now Sodom, as I mentioned before, this is a pretty infamous story. Probably even if you've not grown up in the church, you know the story of Sodom and Gomorrah. And God here says to Abraham, I'm about to go investigate, 
And the outcries come to me. Now, in, in the Scriptures, Sodom becomes this model for human wickedness that just gets exponentially as bad as it can get. And in the Scriptures, it's also a model really for the world. That, that this world is a lot like Sodom and that it is, it is fallen, it is, it is rebelled against God. But the question is, what, what is so bad about Sodom? Now, there's a lot of things that might come to our mind as we think about Sodom. It was certainly a place of extreme sexual perversion. But that was more a symptom of the worst problems that were going on in Sodom. And what was that? It was injustice. Not what we might normally think. When God says here, I'm going to go down, the outcry of Sodom and Gomorrah has reached me. The word there, and he actually says it two times in just that verse that we looked at. The word from outcry is actually taken from the cry of a victim. The cry, the, the cry for help, the screaming for help of someone who's being exploited. Someone who's being abused. Someone who's being taken advantage of by someone who is more powerful than them. Uh, it's, it's the sense of God hearing the screams of a victim. It, you, you know that experience. If you ever thought about that, seen it in a movie... Just the scream of someone in pain. What, what naturally happens to you? Hopefully what naturally happens is we say, wait a minute, what's happening? I need to get involved here. The picture is whenever God hears the cries of those who are being taken advantage of, He's moved to action. And that's what's happening here. Ezekiel describes the wickedness of Sodom in this way. Look at, look at how he puts it. He says... This was the problem in Sodom. They were arrogant, overfed, and unconcerned. They didn't help the poor and needy. Direct quotation. That's what you saw about Sodom? Yes. That sounds a lot like our society too, if we're honest. So they were arrogant, overfed, and unconcerned about the poor. You see, the the problem with Sodom was injustice. It was that they were not disadvantaging themselves for the advantage of the community. They were disadvantaging the community for their own advantage. That's wickedness. It's the definition of wickedness. It was a place of violence, of exploitation, of the strong feeding on the weak. Literally, they were consuming each other in Sodom. And when that reached God, he was moved to action. And so he invites Abraham into this situation to see how Abraham will react. What will Abraham do here? And did you notice, this is a fascinating scene here, where you have this conversation and Abraham is pleading with God. Isn't that interesting? And they go through all of these numbers here. Two things that jump out about Abraham here. One is he understands, and he's kind of pleading this case, that you would spare the wicked because of the righteousness. It's a huge sense there. He's like, if there, is a, if there are righteous people there, because of them, would you spare the whole city? And God actually responds saying, yes, if there are 50 there, if there are 40 there, I will spare the whole place for the sake of the righteous. But also, as, as he's wrestling with God here, what, what is he doing? He's interceding. He, it's almost the, like the sense of what a priest does. A, a priest 
is a mediator. It's, it's someone who comes in between God and people and seeks to bring them together, to intercede for them, to pray for them, to, bring, to reconcile two estranged parties together. That's what Abraham's doing here. He's interceding. He's pleading. And he's doing justice. He's pleading for the sake of those who are being exploited. That's the righteous here. And he, he knows that God is a God of justice. Now look, I'm, I'm stunned with how he wrestles with God on this. You certainly see his humility here, but he's really engaging with God and fighting for the rights of those who are about to be judged even though they might be innocent. Look at what he says here. Uh, second part of verse 23. Will you sweep away the righteous with the wicked? And then in verse 25, far be it from you to do such a thing, to kill the righteous with the wicked, treating the righteous and the wicked alike. Far be it from you. Will not the judge of all the earth do right? He was wrestling with God for justice. What if there's 50? What if there's 45? What if there's 40? What if there's 30? What if there's 20? All the way down to 10. And you notice how God's responding in these. Yeah, yeah, if... If I find 50 there, I'll spare the whole place. Yeah, if I find 30 there, I'll spare the whole place. Now, is Abraham changing God's mind? No. You see, this is, this is a way of Abraham learning about God's heart. It's about him learning to practice justice. Interceding on the behalf of the weak. But not only on behalf of the weak, on behalf of the wicked as well. And it's a way of God saying, this is what I want. Moses shows this to Israel to say, you're to be this way. A people who intercede on behalf of the weak and dare I even say, on behalf of the wicked. And that's what Abraham's doing here. But here's the problem. It doesn't work. Because there's not ten righteous people there. He goes down to investigate. We're going to look at that story next weekend. But they go there. There's not 50. There's not 20. There's not 10. There's not one. Sodom needed someone to intercede. They needed an Abraham. But he couldn't pull it off. He couldn't stay the judgment. They needed a greater Abraham. You see ultimately what this, picture, what this passage is pointing us to? It's pointing us to Jesus. To look at this and say, Abraham, as awesome as he was, he couldn't do anything here. The place was too shot through with sin. We need a greater Abraham. See, the reality is, is that our world is Sodom. We, by nature, are Sodom. And we need a greater Abraham. One that can pull it off. And you know, you just imagine Jesus looking down upon the world before coming into the world. Looking down upon the world with the Father. Seeing the full reality of my sin and your sin and our shame. Seeing the full reality of it all. And you know what Jesus did not say in that moment? Father, what if, what if there are 50? What if there are 40? What if they're 10? He didn't say that. Why? Because he knew. Just as Romans says, there's not 
even one who is righteous. Jesus knew that. Do you know what he did say to the Father? Father, what if there were one? What if there were just one? What if there were one righteous? Would you spare those people? And what if that one were me? What if there were one righteous one and I was that right one? And I would come into their world and I would be perfectly righteous. Would you spare the wicked? And you can just imagine the father saying, you are my son whom I love. With you, I'm well pleased. Go. That's been my plan all along. And Jesus, knowing the full reality of our hearts, would come into the Sodom of this world And he would live with perfect justice in our place. He would lift up the poor and confront the proud and the oppressors every day of his life. He would perfectly obey the Father, perfectly keep God's law in every situation, treating every relationship in the perfect right way. He lived a life of justice in our place. And then it all culminated in that moment on the cross Where all of God's wrath and judgment would rain down. Not upon us, but upon Him. That God's judgment would rain down upon Him in our place. The one righteous for the wicked many. It's a picture of the gospel. And the New Testament tells us that Jesus is continually interceding for us. How often do you think about that truth? If you've ever heard it before. I mean, so many places in the New Testament tells us that Jesus, even now, is standing at the right hand of the Father, and He is interceding for us, like Abraham here. But He's not interceding of, they're they're a little righteous, Lord, is that enough? Will you show mercy? He's not saying that. He's saying, I was righteous. He's interceding with not our merits, but the merits of His own blood. He's saying, Father, I did it. I paid for them. Your your wrath for them fell on me. Here it is. Lord, show mercy. Show your grace. Your wrath has been satisfied. You know, Jesus is continually interceding for us, those who are in union with Christ. Here's what Hebrews 7 says. Absolutely beautiful. Therefore, He is able to save completely those who come to God through Him. Because he always lives to intercede for them. Because of the intercession of Jesus, we are saved completely. Here's my question. Is this what you're trusting in? Is this your only hope? Is this real to you? The... the, Jesus taking your place and interceding on your behalf with the power of His blood and with His finished work. Is that real to you? Does it penetrate your heart? Or is it just an abstraction? You know, we're in the Bible Belt. Everybody believes that, right? But the question is, are you depending on it? Are you saying, that's all I got, but it's all I need? Do you know the Father's pleasure because of the intercession Of the one righteous for you. And is it melting and electrifying your heart? That's the ultimate question. Because when it does, it changes us. You know what Paul said the goal of his ministry is? 
to bring about the obedience of faith. The obedience that comes from faith. Profound kind of reality there. That is, whenever we have faith in the gospel, the fruit of that, what's produced in our life is obedience. Our obedience is not how we get accepted before the Father, but rather being accepted in the blood of Christ alone, obedience follows. It transforms us as it penetrates our heart. So the question is, as a community, is that fruit being born in our life? Are are we a community that is loving in that kind of way? There's a community of forgiveness. There's a community of justice. Where we're looking out in Dade County and we're saying, we're going to live for justice. Where things are broken, we're going to roll up our sleeves and get involved and do something here. You see, as the gospel's penetrating, it creates us. It makes us that way. It's the power to become that way. You see, because the only way to forgive is if the reality of God's forgiveness in you is just hitting your heart and producing all kinds of joy in you. Other than that, you can't let go of bitterness. It'll just eat you alive. The only way to love your enemies is if the reality that in Christ, God loved me when I was His enemy. When that's hitting home in your heart, it empowers you to love your enemy. When you realize, I was poor before the Father, utterly destitute spiritually. I had nothing to offer Him. Utterly broken homeless, and yet God came to me and brought me into his family and has given me an inheritance that can never, never be lost. You see how that makes you someone who loves the poor when you realize I'm poor and God has made me rich? You see, it is applying the truth of the gospel to every area of our life that empowers us to be a community, a missional community, that lives in this way in our community. So let me stop just there and give us a few minutes to interact over that. How does that strike you, challenge you, move you? Maybe you experience joy welling up as you think about the completeness and the power of Jesus' intercession for you. What's happening in you as we look at the passage and we consider Jesus in the gospel? Yeah, Hutch, I remember, uh, it was like two summers ago, I think, I listened to a sermon by Tim Keller on this, and I remember he talked about, like, landed in the same place, like that Jesus, or yeah, this is like pointing to Jesus, but Mm -hmm. even in the way it's written, that you're just like waiting for Abraham finally to be like, but what about one? And he doesn't. And so even when Grace was reading it again, like I knew he wasn't going to get to one, but I was like, I don't remember how close he got, so I was like still kind of excited and like waiting to see. Um, but I think it's really, like, it's always really encouraging to me to, like, be bold with God. Mm. Um, but even in Abraham, like, Abraham didn't get to one yet. You know, like, mm. that was in just, like, seeing how God over-delivers. So, like, you're asking for this, but I'm going to show you, like, how much greater my mercy is. Yeah. Um, yeah, and I think it just is encouraging to me because I so quickly am, like, God is holding out on me. Yeah. Or, um, yeah. God's like, nice, but probably not going to save that, you know, or like, yeah. forgive me in that. But just this, yeah. um, hearing you this morning and also reflecting on it um, as you were talking, it just really encourages me of like, man, God is a God who over delivers and his justice and his mm. mercy. Um, 
and we're the ones who are like thinking so little of him. Yeah. You know? What do you think? That just just hearing you play that out just made me think. What do you think God was thinking? He's having this conversation with Abraham and he knows in his mind, I'm gonna become the one. What would Abraham have thought? I mean, his head would have just gone unthinkable. You know, that becomes so commonplace to us. Oh, yeah, yeah, you know, God becomes a man and, and then dies at our hand on a shameful cross to take away our sins. Yeah, yeah, of course that's what happens. What? What? God dies on behalf of His creation who's betrayed Him. Like, my gosh, how does that not just floor us? We, we get so used to it. And so the, the, what we got to fight for is to not get used to it. To every day, oh, I want the truth of it to hit me fresh so that it changes me. Dustin. Um, I guess what kind of struck me this time about the passage is it, the fact that Abraham is appealing to God's righteousness. Uh, because I tend to think, and I think problematically, I tend to think like righteousness and mercy are like one that you choose whenever you act. Like God has to decide, will I act righteously toward this person or will I act with mercy toward this person? Mm-hmm. And yet, Abraham is like, you are the righteous judge. Mm-hmm. It is only natural that the righteous judge would spare on behalf. Yeah. Um, so it's like, you will be merciful because you are righteous, uh-huh. not against your righteousness. Yeah. yeah. Which just really struck me like, yeah. do I think about righteousness as interwoven with mercy or like yeah. dichotomized? Yeah. It, it was just... Yeah. That's cool. You know, the the neat thing about the Old Testament is that all of these truths are kind of hidden. You know, they're like these gems that are embedded in the rock. In the New Testament, they get brought out into their full brilliance. You know, but you see those little things embedded in there. And uh, I think that's why it's so critical to to read the Old Testament is because it it makes the New Testament uh, pop more. When you, when you see it in the Old, and, and also whenever you read the Old Testament in light of the New, it helps you to understand. I'm vulnerable here. Come a little bit closer. We want to hear come, what you're about I'm to say. I'm very vulnerable here. Okay, yes. Um, sometimes God's mercy can make you cry. It can make you just cry. Sometimes His mercy makes you cry? It makes you cry. Oh, yeah. Yeah, because... One time I was having a very, very, very hard time in my life. And I remember the passage that said, He will pray with you, for you, intercede for you with groans and utterances. And she, anyway, all I could do at that time was just go, oh, I just cried out like that. Because I realized, that it was true, that it was honestly true, that I could at my time of the, yeah, probably probably one of the worst times of my life. Yeah. I could, I could do that. Yeah. And um, be moved to tears. Yeah. That's, that, it, it, what a comfort. And then I, I know, I'm sure we've all been in a place in our life 
where the pain is so great, the discouragement is so great, the sense of shame is so great that you're like, I can't even pray. And just this truth that in that place, Jesus is praying for me, he's interceding for me, and the passage you're referring to, Holy Spirit is groaning out to the Father. You know, just this deep, full-hearted prayer on our behalf. What an incredible comfort. That's so, I, I've experienced that too. I appreciate you sharing that. That it's, what an incredible comfort. There's times I can't pray. He's praying for me in that time. So, yes. Much, I think, I really appreciate you connecting Sodom and Gomorrah, the story, what's going on with Abraham, to my need for a Savior. I always could look at this passage a lot of times, particularly if you read ahead, and go, ooh, I'm not as bad as them, so I don't need it that much yeah, today. Right, right. Yeah. God is busy, and thankfully yeah. it's not with me. Yeah. Um, and so to hear this and think of that, that that's true. Yeah. I am the one in desperate need. I'm, I'm no better than those people. Yeah. Yeah. I want to be, and I, to me that was really really important to make that. I, I'm no yeah. better than those people, and God is busy. He's busy with me, yeah. not just somebody that I think is worse than me. That's right, yeah. That's, it's critical to put yourself in Sodom. And uh, it's, it's not some bad people out there. That's me. My heart is Sodom and Gomorrah. <laughs> I was struck similarly um, with what Peter's saying. And I'm struck by that second, uh, I think it was verse 19. Um, he just got finished saying what he was going to do with Abraham. And he says, because I have known him uh-huh. in order that he do all of these things. Yep. And I was struck by that statement that even Abraham had that nature in him, but God and that sense of knowing a mm-hmm. man and a woman, knowing each other. Yep. He says, I've known him yep. in order yeah. that this happened. Yeah. I thought that's intimacy yeah. with God was the, the difference between Abraham being in Sodom and being on the other side interceding for him. Yeah, right, yeah. He called him. So let me close this in prayer, call our musicians up, and uh, let's pray together. Father, I first would just pray that you would just open our hearts to this glorious reality for those of us who are in union with Jesus, uh, that we are saved completely, that Jesus intercedes for us not because of our righteousness, but because of His. And would we just know how secure we are in His grace and in His power and in His finished work? And would that change us? And would it make us into people who look like Abraham? Who look at this world and we see brokenness and we say, I'm going to get involved. I'm going to care about that. I'm going to take up their cause. And also even people that would see the lost. See people who in many ways, are blatantly running the other way. That we first would see ourselves in them, but then secondly, we would intercede for them. That we would be a people filled with compassion for the lost. Make us like Abraham. Make us like you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.